Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you. Lord, you are the God who hears. You're the God who saves. You're the God who loves us perfectly, and we're so grateful for that. Lord, every single one of us is here in this room because your spirit has drawn us. And we're grateful, Lord, for what you're gonna speak to us through your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. We also thank you for Pat and his faithfulness to you. And uh, just ask, Lord, that you as the good physician would heal him quickly. Lord, that you would uh, remove this this Bell's palsy from him and and, uh, just bless him, Lord. And we're thankful, again, that we have the ability to turn to you in any time and know that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love great stories. I don't know about you, but I... I heard one recently, and I want to share it with you to start this study in Joshua chapter 2. There was this young boy named Derwin Gray, and he was raised in a far less than ideal environment. In fact, no father in the picture. His family were battling substance abuse and were in and out of jail constantly. Derwin, as a young boy, he struggled academically. He also struggled athletically. In fact, at age nine, he tried out for the football team. How many of you have tried out for a football team at age nine or a, or a sport? Is it really a tryout? No, you, ever, you get, what, participation trophies. Derwin tried out. He got cut at age nine. Middle school, he went out for the football team again. He kind of got on to the team. And then in high school, same thing, he scraped on and he said there was this wonderful thing that happened to him his junior year called testosterone. And it went surging through his body and it was at that point in time, he said, that football to him wasn't a game, it was a job. He said it was like a lifeline for him. Quote, it was a passport to get me out of where I was in many ways, It wasn't religious, but football was my God. See, the religious side, he said, didn't matter because football at that time gave me everything I needed. It gave me identity. And football was his lifeline. He did receive a scholarship offer from one college, BYU. So he said, I learned that BYU was run by the Mormons. He wasn't a Mormon. But he excelled at BYU. He was drafted in the fourth round by the Indianapolis Colts. He played six seasons in the NFL. But here's what matters. During his rookie year, he's in the locker room after practice, and he looks around, and there's this guy who's wearing nothing but a towel, walking around in the locker room and talking with different people. And so he looked at some of his teammates, and he goes, who is that guy? What's he doing? This teammate of his named Steve Grant, he was that guy. And others said, oh, he's the naked preacher. (laughs) That he's what? Yeah, he's the naked preacher. He will find somebody who's on their own. He likes to go in and take a shower. And afterwards, he wraps the towel around his waist. And then he walks up. Do you know Jesus? And he does that with every single one of his teammates. So one day, Derwin finds himself in the locker room. And here comes naked preacher. Derwin, do you know Jesus? And that simple question began this five-year dialogue where Derwin would learn what the gospel of Jesus is all about. 
and give his life to Christ. Of course, there's an application there, actually two. Number one is to be bold. Number two is wear more than a towel when you're doing it. But he went on to graduate from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He was mentored by Norman Geisler, if you know who Norman Geisler is. He now holds two doctorates as a church planter, an author, and a pastor. It's not about him. It's about God's grace. Add Rahab to this list of remarkable stories that you and I can be inspired by. In fact, there's three stunning verses in the New Testament that we'll start with before we jump into Joshua chapter 2. The first is the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The author says, It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies And then James, the brother of Jesus, talks about Abraham and his example of faith and then moves straight into Rahab and her example of faith. And he writes, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Now, Matthew chapter 1, the third New Testament verse, reveals that Rahab became the great great-grandmother of King David. How remarkable. Rahab mentioned in the New Testament. Rahab mentioned in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. But here's the bummer part. If you're Rahab, and I don't know that you are, you're probably not, but you notice that in the New Testament, both in Hebrews and James, and then also when she's mentioned in Joshua chapters 2 and 6, they put it like this. Rahab the prostitute, or Rahab the harlot. And I'm thinking, why not drop the harlot from the Rahab narrative? Wouldn't you want that to be the case? But it got me thinking about my own story. Recently, I I received a couple of phone calls, and and they were challenging ones to field. And and I was talking with these people, and, and it brought me straight back to my past, confronted right there. And there's this, this, this element of being humbled, being grateful, still that tinge of shame. I don't know if you've experienced that, Christian. Thinking about Adam the fill-in-the-blank. What about you? And I was encouraged by Rahab because it's not that the stigma of our past sins define us. But when we know that we have been saved from, fill in the blank, God's mercy and his grace are magnified. So we're going to move through Rahab story, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, if you're taking notes. I've titled this section, The Crown Rejected. The crown rejected. Verses 8 through 16 are the, the, sorry, the contract revealed, the contract revealed, and verses 17 through 21, the cord of redemption, the cord of redemption. Let's read verse 1 together. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove, 
to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that it's been 40 years since God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And almost 40 years since Joshua and Caleb and 10 others entered into the land. And now Joshua sends two spies to prepare for conquest. This is an easy book to read, but a hard book to study. Because it is about God using the people of Israel as his instrument of divine judgment against a very wicked people. But throughout Joshua are proclamations of grace and mercy as well. Jericho is not a large city, but it was a very strategic fortress. It was just six miles inland from the Jordan River, and it was a strategic point because to the east is Jordan, to the west is Jerusalem. It was kind of a main artery to go into the land of Canaan. And so strategically, if Joshua conquers Jericho, he can divide the land between the north and the south. In other words, divide the city-states of the land of Canaan and easily or more easily conquered. Now, why did Joshua send the spies? Was it because he was doubtful like they were 40 years ago, fearing the, the people, the inhabitants of the land? No. It was because Joshua was confident that the Lord had given Israel this land that he also prepared in faith. Listen, church, real faith is not passive. Real faith, it takes action. It takes action. So the second part of verse 1, they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Rahab the harlot. I don't know, the first time I read this story, I thought, why did the spies hide out in the harlot's house? I mean, could you imagine that conversation when they returned home? Hey, honey, how was the trip? Did you hide out in a cave? No. Uh, did you find a shadow? No. Uh, did you, uh, I don't know, hide in the forest? No. How'd you hide? <clears throat> harlot's house. Uh, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was her job? Uh, honey, I'm feeling a bit tired. I've been traveling. <laughs> you see, there's, there's the practical side where you and I look at the story from the external and go, what's going on? But then there's the sovereign side. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, I have to go through Samaria? Why? Because God pursues individuals. Because God pursues people. And the Lord knew Rahab's story. He knew Rahab's heart. And he pursued her. Isn't that amazing? Now, 
some people will try and explain away this story and say, oh, she was just an innkeeper, a wealthy matron who had a home. But there's a few problems with that narrative because both the writer of Hebrews and James use the word prostitute in the Greek language. No ambiguity. It's most likely that she was a temple prostitute, an idol worshiper among the Canaanite gods. And her house, the text will later tell us, is in the fortress wall. So I want to give a little bit of a visual if I can. So it's not a large town or a large city like we might think. It's only about five to six acres in size, which is about five football fields put together. And the way that archaeologists have discovered that it was built is there's an outer wall and then 15 feet away, right here, is an inner wall. And then the houses of those who were the poorest in the fortress were built between the outer and inner wall. Rahab is not a wealthy matron. She is poor. Also, it's believed that people who were either enslaved or in a less than ideal situation would be forced at times into prostitution. So we start to see the humanity of what's going on. Now, she is an innkeeper, it seems, also. She has these men who come into her house. And listen to this quote from the Code of Hammurabi. And if it's any, any, sorry, any indication of what it was like for Rahab, this might shed some light on the courage she had. Quote, if conspirators meet in the house of a woman wine seller or innkeeper, and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the wine seller shall be put to death. Don't miss that. Rahab had great courage when it mattered most. Quite literally, she was challenged to put her neck on the line. Verse 4, the woman Rahab took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Rahab is a pretty cunning character. If you're following the narrative, the king of Jericho comes and he sends word to Rahab, hey, bring out the spies. She knows that they're spies. They know that they've gone, the spies have gone to her house. Now she has a choice. It's a battle of crowns. What are you going to do? You can take the, the easy fix, the easy way out on the front end, or are you going to stand up and honor God? It's a pretty courageous call. And of course, you and I know what happens. Rahab doesn't know what's going to happen. So she understands the messengers are coming, and then she says, okay, fellas, come on over, and she hides them under these stalks of flax on her roof, which would be drying out. And then 
she sends the soldiers away. Now, this is treason. Understand what she's doing. This is civil disobedience for the best kind of reason, isn't it? We're going to read verses 8 through 14 in a moment, but I want to start contrasting Rahab with her fellow Jerichoites. I don't know if that's a real word, but we made it up, so it is now. Israel is a threat to their way of life, and Jericho sees these spies as a threat. But Rahab has a different perspective. She sees these spies as salvation. So sinful Rahab, from the outside, you and I look at it, and we think, how? But she embarks on a faith-fueled mission. Step one, reject the Canaanite crown. It's time for a new king. And church, isn't that step one for you and me? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to bow down to the whims of culture. I'm going to stand and follow my God. And what a privilege that call is. So we move in, and again, keep in mind, we're contrasting Rahab with her fellow Jerichoites. And if you have notes, you can do this. If, if you have a good memory, you can visualize this. But create a compare and contrast chart. Rahab in one column and the people of Jericho in the other column. Observe also how Rahab refers to the God of Israel in this section, verses 10 through 13, or sorry, 8 through 13, we're going to read. Now, before they, that's the spies, lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For, listen, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So let's compare and contrast Rahab and the Jerichoites. Both Rahab and the Jerichoites are under judgment. They're under judgment. Regardless of Rahab's actions, the Lord is bringing the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. Both Rahab and the Jerichoites have heard of the greatness of the Lord. Did you catch what, we, what she said? We, speaking of herself, the people in Jericho, and the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, we have heard what your God had done in departing the Red Sea. A little interesting tidbit of information that archaeologists are discovering 
is that the king of Jericho was likely a local mayor or governor figure. And these small city-states that are around the land of Canaan were actually subject to the pharaoh of Egypt. And the pharaoh was considered the king of the territory, and the pharaoh had the right to distribute pockets of land to whomever he wills. That's important. So, they hear about the Lord departing the Red Sea, and, or dividing the Red Sea, and the children of Israel passing through, and the waves coming down and crashing and destroying the Egyptian army. They hear about these two strong kings, Sihon and Og, who came against Israel 40 years previously, and Israel defeated them in battle. Very important. Comparisons. Now let's look at the contrast. Rahab put her trust in the Lord of heaven and earth. Let me highlight three significant words. They're small words. They're verbs, but they're so important. Verse 1, when Joshua said, go view the land, especially Jericho. The second, verse 9, Rahab is speaking and she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then verses 10 and 11, Rahab and Jericho, we heard how the Lord view. It means to see, to inspect, to consider, to perceive. To know, it means to know, to see, or to perceive. To hear means what? To hear or to perceive. It's interesting, isn't it? That's why it's called faith. We don't have full, full confidence, if that makes sense, but we've got plenty of evidence to believe in the faithfulness of our God. If we think about this, they heard about the parting of the Red Sea. They heard about the destruction of the kings east of the Jordan. For 40 years, if Rahab's words ring true, and we have every reason to believe they do, the Canaanites are living in terror and fear of judgment. Rahab lived in fear for her entire life. Now, it seems to me that she's under age 40, but could you imagine living in this place of fear, of terror, of oppression, realizing that, hey, there's a people that are empowered by the God of heaven and earth who are going to come into this land? I don't know. I might be reading a little bit into this text, but it's a heavy place to live. You know, shortly before I got saved, um, I was talking with somebody, and they, they suggested that I read the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is written to comfort and encourage the church. But if you are a teenager and you know you are living in utter sin, Revelation is also a good book to read, but for different reasons. Because it puts a little bit of fear in you, a little bit of terror. And I remember reading the book of Revelation and going, this is nuts. This is, I don't know what it means, but it's terrifying. And I was up for nights on end thinking, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. And then I thought one day, I'm like, I don't have to. 
I don't have to go to hell. I could be saved. And, and you think about it, I, I had, I'd heard the gospel. Rahab, she perceived something about the Lord. What did she understand about the Lord giving thought to it? She said to the spies, the Lord has given you the land. In other words, she's acknowledging even though there might be a king who has the right to distribute the land, the Lord is the king of kings and he has the right. The second, the Lord parted the Red Sea. He's a miracle working God. Your Lord, she said. He's the God of Israel. Now, in Canaan, the chief God was El. And he was the God who created the earth and was over the other gods. But Rahab understands something. There's only one God. And he's not just Lord of earth, but he is Lord of the heavens and the earth. And she understands that he's the judge, that he's coming to judge. She doesn't complain about this pending judgment. She understands. Remarkable, isn't it? I recently finished uh, listening to an audio book. Sometimes I read, sometimes I listen. About this woman who grew up in uh, Pakistan. And her whole life was obviously veiled, if you know what I mean. And as she was growing she realized there was really only one way to make her life count. Her father had ignored her. Her father uh, kind of despised her and looked down upon her her entire life because he wanted a man and she wasn't a man. She was a girl. So she's living in this, in this kind of heavy cloud of oppression. Here's what happens. She decides to become a suicide bomber. So true story, she signed up to become a suicide bomber, but she had such a bright uh, mind that the, the Muslim imam decided that she could go and get an education. So while she's going to get an education, she ends up meeting a guy who doesn't bow down to Allah in Pakistan. He shares with her the gospel. She's indignant, wants nothing to do with it. She's upset. But he asks her questions about the Quran, and she can't shake those questions about the Quran. And over a period of months and even years, she begins to work through these questions, questions, questions. And what's fascinating about God, as much as we want people to come to salvation, don't you think God does? And God pursued her. She ended up giving her life to Christ. Then they show up. Hey, it's time to go. Time to strap on the vest. So she's dragged out. She says, I'm a Christian. And Jesus is God. And she escaped. She's alive. Living for Christ today. Remarkable how God, again, hears our cries, knows what's going on on the inside, and is able to reach into any situation. Any situation. Verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. 
Then she let them down by a rope through the window. And I love the sequencing of it. I, I might be wrong, but it seems to me the sequencing is like this. So the, you know, she gets word, the spies are here. Then the king comes and says, send out the spies, but they haven't yet sent the soldiers. So she's like, okay, before she hid them, she's like, all right, let's negotiate. Seems like that to me, doesn't it? And then, okay, they're gone. And now she brings out and she makes sure she lays out the terms. And then she's like, okay, so now here's the deal. I'm going to be kind and, and, and true to you, and I want you to be true and kind to me. And they're like, you got it. And then she lowers them down, right? She knows what she's doing. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think pretty smart woman. Her house was on the wall. She dwelt on the wall. She said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide them there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. Now, before we move on to the next verses, realize two things. Number one, the Lord has not yet given the marching orders for the destruction of Jericho to Joshua, to Israel, to Rahab, but they are certain, what? That Jericho will fall. They're certain of it. Second, I don't know, but it seems to me that Rahab and the spies might have been thinking of Passover with the scene that we're about to read. See, I don't know if they grasp the foreshadowing that the scene represents, though. Verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. The line of scarlet cord. Notice a couple things. Number one, the spies didn't say, just pick a line, a, a reddish thing, throw it out the window. No, what was it? Take this line of scarlet cord. It was a specific line. Not just any line will do, a specific line will do. You remember the Passover? Very specific instructions that God gave. You're going to take a lamb without blemish, bring it into your house. After a few days, you're going to what? Slay that lamb. You're going to take the blood from that lamb, the lamb that was slain, and you're going to apply the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of your house. And anybody who is inside that house when the death angel passes over will pass over your house but if anybody doesn't do it then they will be judged they will fall under the wrath of the lord the lord throughout scripture as you and i know unveiled a very specific line or a lineage through which he promised to bring the hope of salvation to all human beings 
And this is the grace of God. Genesis chapter 3, we know that there's going to be a seed in the woman, and there's going to be enmity between Satan and the seed. And as Genesis progresses, what happens? We learn that it's going to come through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and there's a very important name that shows up next to Judah in Matthew chapter 1. Her name is Tamar. If you don't know about Tamar, she was married to Judah's sons, each in succession. They died. And then Judah did a no-no, and they had a kid together. But God included Tamar in the line. You move down a little bit, and you run into this character named Salmon, and he marries a woman named Rahab. And then you move a little bit down the line, and their child, Boaz, marries a Moabite woman, somebody who was cursed, Ruth. You come all the way down the line. Here's the message. Our Lord is not afraid to identify with the broken, with the lonely, with the hurting, with the forgotten, or with the sinful. And that's good news for every single one of us. Because each one of us here is what? Broken, lonely, hurting, forgotten, sinful, but redeemed. See, our past does not exclude us from walking in the promise of God. But listen, make sure that you walk with him today. Today. Verse 22, they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain and crossed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint hearted because of us. Now, this is incredible for a couple reasons. Number one is that God promised that he was going to give the land of Canaan to whom? The Israelites. It's an everlasting covenant. And you and I have been incredibly privileged to see that come to pass and God bring his people back into the land today. But here's what's remarkable is that in Exodus chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 2, books written by Moses, God also said that the terror of Israel would fall on the people in Canaan. And that's exactly what's happening. There's two storylines going on, aren't there? Number one is this mission, this military mission that Joshua sends his spies on. Go in, scout out the land, let's get ready. But the second storyline is this, that the Lord sent the spies on a rescue mission. They didn't know it when Joshua sent them out. But there is a woman named Rahab and her family that the Lord wanted to reach. Church, listen, we are in a battle against principalities and powers, but we are also on a rescue mission. So reach out and ask, hey, do you know Jesus? When you're interacting with people who are around you, especially the hard ones, realize there's a story going on. Lord, would you have me to reach their heart? And listen, it's going to involve risk. 
The moment Rahab hid the spies, her neck was on the line. The moment Rahab hung that cord, her neck was on the line. The moment Rahab reached out to her family, pleading with them, persuading them, come into my house, judgment is coming. But if you are here, see this scarlet thread that's hanging? Because of this, the children of Israel are not going to bring us down. She does that. Her neck is on the line. Don't be afraid to lay it all on the line for the kingdom of God. Will you and I be persecuted? Maybe. We live in a very unique time in a very unique place where we enjoy freedom to worship without fear of persecution. But if we put our necks on the line, will we be used by the Lord to influence eternity? Absolutely, yes. Maybe we don't know how, but we will. The late Jim Elliott said these words, a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Of course, we understand something about the scarlet cord, don't we? That Rahab couldn't see. That scarlet cord foreshadowed Jesus, the very Son of God who came from heaven to earth to reach out and give us hope through his own death, through his own resurrection on the cross. And church, we don't stand in our own righteousness. Rahab couldn't stand in her own righteousness. And if anything, that word after her name, prostitute, reminds us she couldn't earn her way to heaven. I don't know what word or words go after each of our names, but it means that we can never be good enough. And when the enemy comes and says to you and to me, you're not good enough, he's right. But he's also wrong. Because we don't have to be. Jesus did it all. And we stand in his righteousness. Our confidence is not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So keep looking up, church, because your what? Redemption draws near. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for an incredible story of hope in your word. There's judgment. You are a righteous judge, and you do and you will judge sin. And we pray, Lord, as we're thinking of people we know who maybe they think they're good enough, but your standard isn't good enough. Your standard is perfection. I pray they would understand that Jesus died for their sins, just like he died for mine. We pray, Lord, that you will move in our hearts, that we would pray fervently for these people we know who don't have a relationship with you. Like Rahab, we'd reach out to those family members and say, hey, come, come inside. Give your life to Jesus.